Welcome to Empowered Conversations. I'm your host, Susie Petrozzi. This podcast will take you on a journey of personal growth and self-discovery through conversations with special guests that will inspire you to live the life of your dreams. Get ready now for an Empowered Conversation. Welcome to Empowered Conversations. Susie Petrozzi here, and I'm so delighted and thrilled to introduce our next guest um, to this conversation. Her name is Lyle Stephenson, um, and I'll tell you, share a little bit about Lyle's incredible um, history so far. Lyle is a first generation migrant with a very mixed ethnic background who grew up in apartheid era in South Africa and came to Australia in the recession we had to have when she was 15 with her parents and two sisters. Lyle has a blended family with her beautiful and kind husband, Kent, and they have four children ranging between the ages of 22 and 11. She loves all the good things, food, eating and cooking, um, and also growing all manner of plants and knitting and singing. And she's always seeking to wear as non-constricting clothes and shoes as the corporate workplace will allow. Yeah, good for you. Lyle is a self-confessed nerd who loves her messy, busy and full life. Lyle works for a multinational insurance broking firm as the practice leader for Marsh Care Solutions across Australasia. The practice provides risk and insurance advice to organisations who are purpose-led rather than profit-driven. Her passion for social justice is reflected not only in her work but in her personal pursuits as a volunteer for a number of organisations who provide support to vulnerable people and this is reflected in her very holistic, grounded and personal focused approach in her role. And as such, Lyle has won three major awards in the last 12 months as a function of her work for the industries that she works on behalf of. So Lyle, welcome to our Empowered Conversation. So wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. That's so cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just to hear all that. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Sometimes it's nice when someone reads something about us in that third person, and we go, "Wow, is that really me?" Well, guess what, Lyle? That's really you. <laughs> and we get to dive in a little bit deeper today about your own journey. You know, I gave a small summary there, but let's let's look at your own journey, your story. You know, growing up in South Africa and then coming here. Um, tell me a little bit about that. So some of the, I think particularly the transition from South Africa to Australia, coming as a 15-year-old. I mean, I know what that age is like having come from Croatia here at the tender age of 13, but I want to know, you know, what you were up against or what kind of things you experienced when you came here. Um, so I think one of the, uh, for me, coming to Australia felt like such a huge gift um, I had grown up um, under the apartheid system. Uh, basically, they split the country and the resources between black people, white people, and colored people, which is the community that I'm part of. And that's the community where uh, it's all the mixes, all the mixed people. And um, it's what we would now call intersectional. So, um, 
that community did not have the level of resources that, you know, the white community had. And that included things like not um, having playgrounds on our fields or grass even. And um, fortunately, my mum is a teacher and my dad was one of the first non-white people to actually get a degree um, in South Africa. And he had to study off campus because he wasn't allowed to be on campus. Mm. Um, And he was actually the first person in his family to get his year 12 Mm. um, as well. Um, But that was very difficult for him to get. And I remember him studying as as I was a young, you know, a young girl. Um, My mother was one of the first people to actually be on campus as a non-white person and got her degree. So that was revolutionary in South Africa. Mm. To, to have a family that, that was that educated. And my parents spent eight years trying to get us out of South Africa. And we had to have all sorts of psychological tests and eyesight tests. And I remember my sister um, nearly failing the whole family because it turned out her eyesight was very bad. Mm. You know, so she had like plus four in one eye and, um, you know, kind of really major issues and, and they were using anything they could to try and get us to not leave the country. Right, right. Okay. So when when we left to come to Australia, we went to Perth, which is what a lot of South Africans do. So I don't know if you know the joke, but, um, you know, if you want to have a mini South Africa, just go to Perth. Mm. And um, the... The experience of coming to Australia was we've been told stories about there being, uh, you know, drugs on every corner, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the the opposite was actually true. So we had a house in um, a little suburb um, in, in Perth. It's called Morley. Mm. And it had no front fence. So it was an old Californian <laughs> bungalow. And and no bars on the windows, and and no um, kind of uh, barbed wire, and yeah. no scary dogs. And that actually was way more scary, sleeping in that house with no protection, yeah. than I had ever experienced. So, so the context of of um, you know what you grow up with and what you understand was so different in Australia. And I, I never, you know, we were able to go to a selected school, my sister and I, mm. and uh, we got such huge opportunities. You know, I got to participate in lots of sports, lots of things that I'd never had a chance to do. I'd never had any formal training sessions in anything, swimming, none of the things that the kids do. And um, so for me, it was actually such a really fun experience and, and a really eye-opening one and I got to get my degree without having to pay for it up front Mm. Um, you know I had to work three jobs uh, including cleaning for disabled people Mm. to get through university because my parents couldn't help um, financially but um, but still I just felt like you know I I kind of landed in the the places of freedom Mm. Mm. 
Wow. I mean, there's a real sense of, you know, determination and, and, and almost real vision of, you know, for both your parents in terms of what they wanted to see happen and great opportunities. And, and they, they really worked for that, didn't they? And then when you came here, you, Australia was, was your oyster and you made the most of it. Yeah, it wasn't good for them. I mean, I think you would have, I don't know what your experience is like with your parents, but they left their family. They left their standing in the community. Mm. They, um, their qualifications, my mums were not recognised in Australia. So she had to go and, you know, clean hotel rooms, which was very demeaning for her. Mm. Um, and we couldn't take much money out of, out of South Africa at that stage anyway. So we, we suffered a very big change in lifestyle. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I took my parents many, many years to, to get themselves up to a level again where they felt that they were actually um, on a similar standing to what they'd left in South Africa. So it was a huge sacrifice for mm. them, and I was very present to that. Mm. And, and and remember remember this um, the hard work that needed to happen. I mean, yeah. Look, f- for me, for us, it was a little bit different in the sense of we were coming because of the war. But one of the things that I want to ask you, coming from South Africa, coming with you know a mixed, rich um, ethnic background, um, who like do you remember asking yourself ever who am I or now that you were in Australia, do you remember thinking about that? Yeah, I I spent most of my late teens and my twenties in trying to be something and someone I wasn't. Um, You know, one of the first things I remember being, I guess, uh, very shameful was I've got fine hair, but it's very curly and I have a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So going to the hairdresser, the first time I got my hair cut in Perth, I got such a horrible haircut. I thought I couldn't. It was it was so shocking that you know there was no one that could actually cut my hair. Oh yeah, of and course. it was it was such a um, a shock to my system, you know. And mm. then I spent all the time because the only mirror that I had was a whole, you know, a community of predominantly white people. So I would wear colors and clothes that really didn't suit me. Because I was trying to keep myself under the radar, um, and I'd grown up because I'd grown up in the apartheid system, which is you know, if you think of a class system, yeah. it's like the whiter you are, the better you are. Yeah, and because right. I was on the darker end of my family, I grew up with the you know the fat, black, and ugly uh, story. And so in Australia, because I could never find clothes that fit me well, couldn't get my hair cut properly, I stayed under the radar pretty much my, you know, I would say right until I was 35 mm. um, and and made some decisions about, you know, partic- particularly in the personal capacity that really damaged my um, my sense of my self-esteem and my sense of my life. 
Mm. And, um, and yeah, so it was, I didn't have any, I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to about those things or, or, um, any support, you know, I just had to, I didn't even realize that it was actually just running my whole life, yeah. you know, and, um, and that's why I think I'm so very passionate about making sure that our young women have a different story to tell, particularly mm. those women of color than mm. what I had. Mm. Yeah. So let, let's go there. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I, I can, g- given, given your upbringing, given your journey, given the things that you had to go through, um, given this um, sense of keeping under the radar. And again, I can really identify with that as a Serbian Bosnian Serbian growing up in Croatia coming here it's like mm-hmm. even though the messages weren't around don't talk to anyone but it was it was kind of implicit in the culture so keeping under the radar was you know certainly something that I grew up with without even knowing it but I I don't think it's not just unique to you and I so let's bring that to you talking about um young women and you know what particularly women of color um, or of a different race or, you know, cultural mm. background, what what do you want for them? What do you want them to not have to, I guess, go through? Let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, I think there's um, – I just – I was asked to run some training by a company recently. Um, we had two sections. One was kind of unconscious bias and the other was unconscious privilege. Mm. And um, in in that, you know, there's the kind of I guess we had a section on what white privilege means, and it's you know walking into a place and not assuming, uh, you know, that you don't belong there. There was a whole bunch of these examples. And I just had this moment of I I was running the session, and I was going through each of these points, and I was like. I have experienced the opposite of that in years when it happened, et cetera. And I just had this huge realization. This is only a month ago. Mm. But um, I think one of the biggest things for me is that, you know, the skin that we walk in, particularly when you're, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. So when you're a woman, that's something that people see, Mm. firstly. Mm. And when you're a person of color, that's what they also see. Mm. So these are things that are kind of out of your control. Um, the minute that you walk into any space, mm. you know, any room, any circumstance, and um, that the shame that goes with that is actually automatic. Mm. You know, you, you shift the way that you stand, you speak quiet, quieter, you um, don't put your hand up when you have something to say, particularly if it's in a meeting with lots of people more senior than you or older than you. Um, you know, you try harder to, to do better at school, all sorts of things. And it's, it's so insidious in the way that we actually operate and that we don't actually have, even, even things like, you know, being bearing children, the fact that we have to bear children mm. is, is a disadvantage. <laughs> mm. 
you know, in, in the corporate In a corporate, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is like you, you walk in and it's always like if you're of a certain age, you're a certain color, you're, you know, your gender is female. There's mm. all these kind of very quick assumptions that are made about, you know, what you must be doing, particularly if you just got married, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and I think, I think for me, having um, grown up in, you know, the apartheid culture and coming to Australia and realizing there's a, a very different playing field, but that really for women, that playing field was very small. You know, like we were left to sit on the sidelines. I spent most of my career just, you know, um, always having to give up the big seat for someone else, but I didn't even know I was doing that. Mm. So I think, I think, and there's no, there's not many role models either of women of color, particularly in Australia that are mm-hmm. senior women. Um, and, and so I think that's also a very recent conversation. So if I say, what do I want that's different for mm. younger women? Mm. I would say I want them to have a network of support around them that can help them develop the skills they need in order to live a life where they're, they don't have to live under the radar. Mm. Yeah. It's a big thing to ask though. Because I know, I know it's you know it's, it's a big, big thing to ask for. But I'm asking, and and I love that you're asking. You know, as you say that, what comes up for me is a conversation that I had with Sable um, Badaki um, a few podcasts ago, and one of the things she was sharing is this is this moment where she was participating in a morning networking meeting. She was sitting on a table with some lawyers. There was a young woman there, I think just starting out in her career, and the senior woman next to her said to her, I think they were talking about speaking out or something to that, to you know, in that direction. And the younger one was said by the older one, just keep your head down and work hard, right? I mean – that in itself to me, um, I mean, it was a brilliant example of what Sable shared, but it's like going to what you're saying. Um, there, there are no mentors, particularly as you say, of color who, um, who are, are there to try and help these young women. But then sometimes, whether it be unconsciously, probably more than likely, women in position of power, um, actually, uh, can be inevitably somehow, um, you know, sabotaging or demeaning of of the young person trying to get ahead because they can see that something's not right. So I guess my question around that is, you you know, you're speaking from a lived experience working in a corporate wor- in, in world, but also outside of it. Um, and you've seen, you've experienced a lot of um, different situations where uh, I remember reading one of your articles where you were sitting in the meeting, there was a junior who, um, junior s- staff member um, who the client spent the entire meeting speaking to, okay, because they assumed you were, that you were the junior. So yeah. there's a lot of those moments where you would have felt something at the core, right? Whether it be um, whether it be shame, maybe not in those meetings, but maybe in some. Um, whether it be um, 
um, you know, I'm insignificant or imposter when we when women are trying to Absolutely. get a Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe yeah. speak to that in terms of how you were looking at your career, how you continue to overcome that or how you've overcome some of those things. Because, you know, the the reality is that it's still um we're still encountering this and there's still so much work to be done around inclusivity and diversity. Yeah, I agree entirely. And so, you know, um, I, I find it so interesting. Um, I, I have a, um, a young, so she's a just a 30 Sri Lankan minister in the Uniting Church and um, she's just told me the other day that she's adopted me as her mentor and I had no choice in that. <laughs> but she, she, oh, that's beautiful, um, I I thought that was so excellent. I was like, yep, I'm good. <laughs> I'm happy with being adopted. Um, she said that because particularly with the Black Lives Matter issue mm-hmm. um, and in that environment, and she's, you know, she's a woman of color. She says she feels such pressure to be publicly woke. Mm. And this is a phrase she uses, being publicly woke. And mm. and she said, what do you do about that? Mm. And um, she said, because she gets asked whenever they have any sort of diversity, inclusion, quota, um, discussion, everyone comes to her because she's the representation of the color and the diversity and the gender and the or the, you know, the stuff that um, makes an organization look like they're diverse and inclusive. Mm. I'm not saying that, that the Uniting Church isn't, because I really think it is. Mm. But this this thing about being publicly woke and making statements around things like Black Lives Matter really gets her, mm. you know. And um, that, uh, my response to that was, and I think, so I guess my answer to, you know, how do I go from, you know, the keep your head down and work hard mm. to standing for women or being visibly, you know, public um, is I don't think I have to do anything other than just do good work in my little patch of the world. Mm. You know, I I don't really um, believe that I represent an entire nation of, you know, brown-skinned people all around the planet, which is kind of a crazy thing. Yeah. Um, And I I certainly don't um, feel any pressure to be publicly woke because, frankly, I just think that's an illusion and it actually makes no difference. So whenever um, I'm in any situation where there's an experience of my own shame or my own imposter syndrome, I do a lot of work to identify that and move past it as fast as possible, even if it's only a little step past it. Um, in inside of my goals. I'm also very, very clear about my, I guess, my life and purpose. Mm. And I, I think that's something that is really important. It's something that I tell every person that um, I've got a number of mentees that um, work with me. Yeah, I, I give them homework when we start is to develop their life purpose. Mm. 
their life manifesto. Mm. And, you know, um, so I, I think I spend so much time in what's my purpose, what am I here for, what am I trying to achieve, mm. that the fear that comes up when I feel the imposter syndrome, that I'm too fat, like and ugly to be standing on a stage, mm. you know, my stomach is sticking out, I'm old, all these things, all the things are gone for all of us. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it kind of, I can hold that in light of what I'm trying to achieve. Mm. Mm. Um, but those feelings are very real for me. I mean, I, I think, I think every time I go and do any sort of public anything, yeah. I get to be run. You know, yeah. maybe that's too much information. But um, I, I get you I, though. <laughs> I just, I just get really scared. Like I get nervous. I, I'm yeah. paranoid about things going wrong. I, I prepare to death. Yeah. I'm, I'm so incredibly organized. And I, I think at the basis of that, I think the only thing I'll change about that advice that that older lady gave to the younger lady mm. is work really hard, mm. but keep your head up. Mm. Look up. Because mm. when you look up is when you get to see the opportunities, you get to see who else might partner with you, you get to see um, where you can actually take that little step towards your goal. Mm. So that's the only thing I would say because it's true, you have to work hard. Mm. We we have to work from a backwards position compared to, to other people, particularly those of us who don't have private school education or the networks or the, mm. you know, grew up in a different country. We do have to work harder. That's the truth. Mm. I, I mean, what you just said, though, there is, I mean, the, you know, I, I just feel your, your mentees are very blessed to have you, to have you um, really keep them accountable to their purpose. And even if they don't know it, but to keep them accountable to thinking and asking the big questions, what am I here for? What am I trying to achieve? Because that, you know, certainly in my line of work, what I do, that is that that is why I do what I do. And there is, um, I guess, more and more so unwavering uh, trust in that. And if we don't have that, we're going to be pulled and pushed in so many different directions because we don't know that. So, um you know, the advice on working hard and keeping your head up, uh, brilliant. You know, I, I wish that someone had given that to me, but, you know, I've learned, I'm learning that's the most important thing. The question I want to ask you is when you're working with your mentees and when you're encouraging them to think about that purpose, are there specific things that you do with them or are they, you know, to help them develop that or is it just kind of staying in the question? What do, what do you do? Um, so I guess um – so a couple of things is, um, uh, you know, just, just to that point of women in power and not being able to translate how they got there, the, 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 the little point you made before. Mm. Um, I actually have reverse mentors as well, what I call reverse mentors. And these are young people who I really just, you know, they are just setting the world on fire. They've got the energy. Mm. They're very good, strong people with integrity. They're very clever. They they teach me how to use my phone properly. <laughs> you know, like they, you know, how to do LinkedIn and all the Facebook, whatever. You know, 
Mm. Um, that there's a whole lot of skill and talent that they have that I don't have. And so, um, and a perspective on the world that I really, uh, you know, I'm really keen to engage with because that's where the kind of edge of growth is, is with our young people. Mm. So I think there's, there's one, there's two things about that. One is that with my mentees, I, um, I have some, like a reverse mentor who I don't mentor, mm-hmm. um, but he mentors me. Um, so it's a bit of a mutual mentor relationship, I would say, because I think if I had to ask him, he would say I'm definitely a mentor for him. <laughs> but then with these, with these, um, I guess my, um, in our formal men- mentee relationship, Um, because our company has actually piloted a mentor-mentee program a couple of years ago, Mm. and I'm one of the founders for that, Mm -hmm. is that um, when I'm doing that, when we first start talking to each other, I find out what it is that they're wanting to achieve in the the relationship with me Mm. because it's a six-month program. Mm. And then um, I tell them, what are the skills that I particularly have and that when I mentor, I'm not just focusing on work, even though there might be certain specific things that they want to work on, like getting promoted Mm. or um, working out what they want to do with their career, whatever the case may be, but that I'm really interested in what kind of human being they are and what they bring to the planet and what value do they deliver, particularly because they're young. And they're educated and they're earning money. And it's like, I think it's really important for them to understand that they've got a place on this planet and part of that is to make a difference to it. Mm. And so I come from that perspective. So I'm actually quite hard work. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I, I would them. want you as I a mentor. Them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I That's think, a good I'm mentor. Like, you know, my time is precious. So I'm like, yeah. if you're going to work with me, you know, you, you should rock up on time. Correct. Be prepared. Don't be vague. Yes. And, you know, even if you don't get a chance to do all of the work, do some of the work. Like be excellent in the way that you engage. Mm. You know, and that there's, there's because I expect them to be excellent because they are excellent, mm. you know? Mm. And and there's something about that that it's like when I ask them this question is, what is your purpose? Do you know what your purpose is on the planet? Yeah. It it's totally big, stumps them. Yes. Big question. I love it, Lyle. Oh, incredible. They get so confronted, you know, and yeah. then they come back and they bring a manifesto and it's all about, you know, working hard at work and, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having your inbox be clear and all the stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but what about what kind of husband or wife you want to be mm. or what partner, what what kind of parent do you want to be? You know, what kind of neighbor do you want to be? Like, mm. if, so for me, it's really about, I think if we were standing inside of our purpose, a lot of this noise would kind of just go away because we wouldn't be worried about so much about our self-consciousness or our shame Mm. because we have better things to do with our time. Okay, pause, stop. So hang on. (laughs) That is huge. Let me just say that again. Like sometimes we just have to let the message of what you just said reverberate through every cell of our body 
and you, what you were saying, if we just sometimes, if we just let ourselves stand in our purpose, put everything else aside and, you know, just put the noise down, so to speak, we wouldn't be worried about, you know, all the things that we may get caught up, the, we wouldn't be, our self-confidence wouldn't even be an issue. We wouldn't even be thinking or worrying about that. And there's something really, really important in that. It's like the more that you can, I mean, we're talking about your mentees here or, you know, reverse mentors, whatever it is. But really, if we think globally, if we think collectively, what you've just said, if we can just stand more in why are we here, you know, ask those questions that you're saying, what kind of a wife, partner do I want to be? What kind of a neighbor do I want to be? I mean, that is the essence of why we're here. And you're already doing that within this. I mean, you're already doing that within an organization, but you're doing that because of who you've come to be. And I just want to yeah. acknowledge you for that. That is, oh, you know, you. we want more of that. You know, what comes up for me is um, I, I read in one of, the, in, in an article, Deloitte Insights was saying 2020 is like all about how can we remain distinctly human in a technology-driven world? Well, yeah, hello. You know, like bringing out the potential in, in, in employees, getting them connected to their purpose and the company's values and all that kind of jazz you're doing that. It's like, you know, you're, you're step ahead, three, five, 10, a hundred steps ahead. So Lyle, um, you know, your what you're doing is already creating such a huge ripple of impact. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, you know, I guess I just want to say one thing about what you said about the self-confidence, the thoughts of lack of confidence, fear, all of that goes mm. away. It, it doesn't go away. It just gets muted enough so that you can move forward inside of your purpose when you have a purpose. Thank you. Yeah. And and I think, you that, know? yeah, it doesn't go away. You're right. But it's maybe our relationship to to it is, is changes, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And, when you when you're in that okay, I've got this purpose to do X, mm. right? And then you're like, okay, I'm really not very good at Y. But if you're working hard and you're looking up, then <laughs> you can ask the people who are good at Y to help you with whatever the thing is, so yeah. that you don't have to feel ashamed that you can't do it all. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. And and it's 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 okay not to be able to do it all and it's okay not to be perfect and it's okay to have your weirdnesses, you know, mm. like me with my my nerdiness and my knitting and the whatever. Mm. Because I I look at that and go, you know, when it comes to this particular conversation and I want us to further this conversation about, you know, diversity and inclusiveness. I'm using my platform in the corporate world to do that mm. um, because that's the platform I have. Yeah. And that's enough. It, it, it doesn't matter mm. that I don't have a big platform. 
I just have to use the one I have, mm. you know. Mm. And and it's it's kind of okay if um you you just small things like if if you have someone who's um in your community or around you and they might be Muslim for example and they wear a hijab and, and you don't understand why they do that mm. is have a little conversation and say, Oh, could you explain to me why why do you wear that? What does it mean? Yeah. Um, and that in itself promotes diversity because you're expanding your consciousness of what diversity looks like mm. and training yourself to improve. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it just doesn't have to be like we have to change the, the world by ourselves. Mm. <laughs> I think what what you're saying is that, um, in a sense, don't be scared to ask questions so that you can actually learn, so you can actually find out. Because I think one of the things, and and you may have said this in in an article, which was um, in the what was the digital magazine that you were featured in. You can or remind me the uh, insurance. Yeah. Um, business magazine, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things, if I remember correctly, you were saying it's uh, sometimes people, I don't know if it's they're scared to ask questions or scared to have a conversation around difference, something that's different, someone that's different. And, and yet when we ask questions, but given that they're coming from a genuine willingness to learn and openness and understand, it can just break down barriers. And applying that to yourself as well. Yeah. You know, know, when we have, if we ask ourselves those same questions Mm. with the same gentleness and kindness that we apply to other people, Mm. we might get a different answer than applying the lens of shame all the time or I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, so when it comes to shame, you know, one of the, uh, when, when we first connected and we talked a little bit about, um, having this empowered conversation, the, the statement that you said around kind of what happens at work and some of the things that you were experiencing way back, particularly was that there was so little help and so much shame, whether it be about being a woman around being different. Now, when you, when we, when I say that statement now, in a workplace, and given what you know now, what else can you add that to that? I know we've spoken quite a bit already. Anything else that comes up that you want to um, add to that statement? Um, I think I think every human being experiences shame about something, and I think that it. I think when you really know. When you know shame, you know empathy. Mm. So there's there's a authenticity about connecting with someone else who's experiencing shame that you have when you've experienced shame, particularly major shame. Mm. Um, and I I think um, when it becomes uh, toxic or when it is when you actually 
blow the shame out of proportion and you let the shame stop you from fulfilling whatever your purpose is in that moment. Mm. And I think a lot of my experience has been with um, diversity inclusion initiatives so far Mm. has been that it's coming from this place of, you know, your actions, who you are has shamed me, therefore you're wrong. Mm. And then we set up a positional, you know, defensive um, posture with that other person. Yeah. And then they don't want to play with us anymore. Yeah. And and I think for me, I assume that every person I'm talking to knows what shame is. And they might not have the same degree of shame that I've had, but I can stand next to them and have them be a partner with me in actually creating something new that reduces the shame um, or the unfair burden of too much shame because of colour or gender or whatever the case may be. Mm. But I don't I just don't assume the other person is different to me. I assume they just like me and they experience the same feelings I experience and they have the same thoughts that I have and mm. so far I haven't been proven wrong. Yeah. You know, so mm. so that kind of when you say so when I've said so much shame, so little support, I think that balance of bringing more support helps to reduce the shame. Mm. You know, yeah. and um and that shame can be shifted. It doesn't have to be held it doesn't have to be used as a weapon. It doesn't have to be um, used as a way to to reduce or minimize itself. It's just it's a, an emotion that we all experience. Mm. And sometimes we have to go to work. You know, we have to go and sit with a, a therapist or a, a, a counselor or somebody that helps you process that in a way so you can get past it. You know, yeah, and that's hard work, mm. and it's lots of tears and tissue boxes. <laughs> but but it's it, you know, I I don't know. Does that answer that? Absolutely. Well, it, it's I mean, it's just more around um, you know un- unpacking it more, and you, you have you've done it so so beautifully and with so much meaning. And really, the standout for me is that. Um, that that shame can be shifted, you know. Shame can be shifted, and but we need to be willing and open. and And it's a beautiful. I mean, yes, it's hard. It's painful. Shame is a very um, hard emotion to experience and express. But gosh, when we do that, going back to what you were saying, we can then really authentically connect with some someone else's experience and who they are as a person. So there's so many beautiful gifts in that. Um, and so many lessons that we can learn from, 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 well, I'm going to say from shame, but really from every emotion. Um, so, you know, as we start to come um, to close our conversation, um, Lyle, what are you continuing to learn? What's the what are the biggest things that you're continuing to learn, or things that you've learned that you really want to continue to apply? Um, what are some of those biggest things for you? I think the biggest thing for me at the moment is learning to accept 
that I am um, a spark of the divine and that I belong here and that I matter and that what I do and say matters. Um, And, you know, learning to love myself enough to share that love with other people. Mm. Um, And, you know, to, to sit still and enjoy Enjoy a little bit of quiet and a bit of peace. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. I want to say that again. I, you know, as as we've been talking, I've been taking notes here and there. But gosh, there's such profound wisdom, and also there's such such so much love and joy in what you've just said. And and that is, I'm learning to accept that I can that I'm that I am a spark of the divine, um, that I belong here, and that I matter. And that what I say or do matters. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's, that's going to be my, like, that's going to be my, my, my affirmation for the next few weeks. I tell you, <laughs> that is wonderful. Absolutely. That is so it, wonderful. It, it's so true. Mm. You know, we look at our children and the people around us that we love and everything they do and say matters. Mm. Yeah. You know? So I think that's so true. And I'm I think I'll be on that journey until the day I leave the earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I'm I'm sure that you'll continue to um embrace it as you are. I mean, before we hopped on the call, we were talking about joy and sparking the joy in our lives and how how wonderful it is when we can tap into that place. And, um, and you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that we can do that so much easier when we reduce, when we bring, when we lower our standards. Mm-hmm. Mm. So lower the bar. The lower the bar. Lower if the bar. If you want joy, lower the bar. Just, you know, go for anything that brings you joy. If that's like three M&Ms or a little packet <laughs> of M&Ms, perfect. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Oh, Lyle, this is so um, been so immersive and um, just delicious. No, that the, the words just came out delicious. It is, it is. So, um, I want to ask you one last question. What is your vision for your life here? Um, I have I've distilled it to a statement um, to be of service in love, and that. That's what I stand in in everything that I do, mm. to be of service in love. Yeah. Mm. Ah, thank you. You know, that really, you really um, radiate that, you really do. And what a what an amazing conversation this was, Lyle. Um I kind of just want to, I just want to continue the conversation. (laughs) So as we end, any last messages that you wish to share? Um, I just want to thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, I just want to thank you for the effort that it takes to put this together and to follow your instinct on producing this podcast. I think it makes a huge difference and I, I feel deeply honoured to be in this conversation with you 
And um, I'm proud and happy to partner in anything that makes, you know, makes our world a better place, particularly for those of us who, you know, we started behind the eight line mm. compared to other people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. No, thank That's you, all. Lyle. Thanks for joining me today on Empowered Conversations. Subscribe to the show now and then head over to my Facebook page, Susie Petrozzi, for free personal growth and self-discovery tools that you can use today to be present, be powerful and be on purpose. See you next time for Empowered Conversations. Empowered Conversations.